Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and I am honored to be joined by our next guest, who has been frequently requested to come onto this onto our humble little podcast, a very popular nomination by many people. We have to get Alan Brooks on the podcast. So we finally have connected. And Alan, it's a joy to have you on our podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Christian. Um, it's, it is a pleasure to be here. I thank you so much for, uh, for the opportunity to, to go back through memories. You know, I, I have been listening to some of the, uh, the podcasts that you have put together in uh this this year and even last year and it's been this awesome trip down memory lane um uh, there's a a unique significance i think about salt lake that not only makes something like what you're doing um even that much more remarkable but it, it's it's just i don't know you talk with almost anybody who who has been involved with the salt lake games and it was just such a special special time special experience really didn't re- didn't matter your age, the department you worked in, uh, just, it was, it was an incredible experience. So I look forward to dissecting that and giving my, my take on it. And, um, yeah, really appreciate the time and uh, really appreciate what you're doing to capture it all. Well, I appreciate you finally coming on and adding to those experiences, those shared stories. It's funny. Sometimes people think, oh, well, you know, you've already had somebody on for my function or on my venue, you know, no, they've already told the stories, but everybody has their own story. And so I really appreciate you coming on and sharing it. Yeah. But before we dive into Salt Lake 2002 stories, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and where you're joining us from? All right. Uh, I'm joining you from Oakland, California, in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, called the sunny side of the Bay. We're five to 10 degrees warmer than San Francisco and more sunshine. So that's why I'm on this side. Um, I moved back here in 2010. Um, I was born in Berkeley, California and, um, lived in California, uh, different parts of California up through high school before moving, moving out. Uh, but I came back here in 2010, um, which I will, I will get to later in the podcast, but, um, what I'm doing now, um, I have actually, so after a number of uh, many years in the event space, um, I came to a place of deciding I had a, a job with uh, GoPro here in the, in the local, uh, local area and was laid off. They went through a big restructuring and downsizing and I was laid off and I took the time to think about pivoting and what would be next uh, stage of life and look back on life and uh, some of the things that I really, really enjoyed, which a lot of that had been in the Olympics or World Cup or large sporting events. And I realized that part of what I loved was team building, team dynamics, organizational development, um, kind of the executive leadership space. And so I went and got a bunch of training in, in that area. And about two years ago, started doing um, more work around uh, leadership development, executive coaching. Uh, putting together um, bespoke leadership programs, really drawing upon what I realized is a lot of what I had been doing very naturally in the way in which I love to lead teams and be a part of teams in, in projects like the Olympics was very much what I wanted to do outside of this. I could either do it as a part of the job, as part of a, a leader within an organization, or I could 
take that service and, and offer it specifically. So I started doing a lot of that while also still doing some event, um, event work, contract projects, things like that. Uh, and then the, uh, the COVID hit and my projects in large part because of the industries that the two industries that I was focused on in terms of events and uh, leadership development, organizational development, just, I mean, overnight went away, um, evaporated. I had a, a really nice book of business for 2020 and all of it just, uh, was gone. Uh, it was pretty, you know, pretty testing. I have to say, you know, I know there's, um, you know, just to be very real and candid, you know, it's been, it's been a, a challenging year for many respects, but also I think COVID has, you know, brought this, this light on what is really, really important and what is really needed. And so while it's been, you know, over this past year has been, um, been unemployed, it's offered an opportunity to, um, connect even deeper with family here. My father, uh, he's in his, um, mid high eighties. He lives here just very close to me. I've been able to look after, after him and, and provide support to him and his wife. Um, other family that's here in the Bay area, uh, was my mom was going through some stuff back in North Carolina. I was able to go back and spend some time with her. Um, and then just started to think about how can I pivot yet again? Um, so I actually have, I've gotten into, uh, Forex trading, uh, over the last kind of eight months and, um, have really enjoyed the, the element of learning a new skill, learning something that is potentially, repre- uh, um, uh, proof from a, another recession, uh, recession proof. Um, but also it has this micro macro dynamic to it. That, uh, is one of the things that I love about the Olympics and large projects, you know, you, you work at 30,000 feet, but you have to drop down into the details as well into the weeds and kind of go back and forth between those two. So trading uh, offers that understanding micro dynamics and, and also getting into the charts and the details. So I've enjoyed it. Um, would love when things return to whatever the new normal is going to be, uh, getting back into some of the, the event stuff and, uh, organizational development leadership that it worked that I was doing before. Yeah. Well, that's super interesting. And I actually want to have a conversation with you offline about that because uh, there's other things that I've been working on. I find it great that you were able to at least partially escape the orbit of events. I've tried on a couple of occasions Mm. and I've never really been successful in doing it, but I'm kind of at a place where I'm also doing a little bit of a pivot, still uh, very much involved on the, on the uh, event side with the IOC and stuff, but uh, also doing some other things. And I think it's, that's Mm -hmm. uh, really, really fascinating. Yeah. I think it's really important. You know, I think a lot of people, I think in the event industry, especially those that are coming in newer, and maybe this is one of the learnings and you're going to ask about learnings, but a lot of people are coming in uh, or newer, I think can get a little bit anxiety around when the event is ending, you know? Um, but I, I think from the beginning, I looked at them as these natural break times and this, this opportunity to sort of, um, see what that event had been about, what it had done for me, how I had changed, evolved, grown, and who I am now. And do I, you know, do I want to go on to the next event? And if so, you know, what, what do I want to have that event experience be or what sort of opportunity? And really, you know, many times we can get into jobs where they just kind of like keep rolling forward year after year and you wake up and 10 years down the line, you've been at the same company and in the event space, as you well know, 
you get this opportunity to sort of start anew multiple times. And I think if it can be embraced with a level of curiosity, both about self as well as what the future is going to hold, uh, it's a great time to just have a natural pause and break, uh, recalibrate, rejuvenate yourself and, and continue to move forward. Um, and through that process, I've been able to work on a bunch of different sides of the events. It's been operations, but it's also been marketing and sponsorship and organizing committees, IOC. Uh, eventually got around the GoPro was my first time uh, working with the, on the brand side um, and working inside their marketing events department on the brand side and also worked with agencies. So it's been interesting to kind of be able to pivot through and, and take on different experiences. So, Alan, I'm really super excited to talk about Salt Lake. But before we do, I want to go someplace perhaps a little bit more tropical. Uh, I have this question marooned on an island. So if you Uh, were marooned on an island, Tom Hanks style, eventually you'll be rescued. But you are there for a period of time and you could have one album, one movie and one meal. What would they be? Okay. Um, I'm glad you you, uh, let me know I'm going to be be rescued. That leaves a little anxiety off. Uh, my album would be, uh, Lauren Hill, the miseducation of Lauren Hill. I just, I love there's, there's, I don't know if there's one track on there that I don't like. I can, it's an album I can turn on anytime. It's got this beautiful blend of hip hop and soul and R and B and a little reggae. Uh, so just like the tracks are fresh and new, uh, all the time. It feels like, uh, makes me move, makes me smile. Um, there's a couple hidden tracks at the end. There's two hidden tracks at the end, which is a nice little surprise and delight. So I think Lauren Hill, that would be my album. Uh, movie. This is a, it's always my same Shawshank Redemption is my, is my go-to movie. I love that movie. Um, there are other parts of it that are, that are a little dark, but I feel like the darkness just helps to illuminate the light, uh, that comes at the end of that story. And just that underlining, uh, element of friendship and the undying hope and belief that comes. Um, and a man who sacrifices, you know, for, for other people and his friend, I think it's just a beautiful story. Um, and my meal, I had trouble with this one. I, I love food. I love, I've lived a lot of different places. So I decided my meal is going to honor, um, some of the events and countries that I've lived in. So, uh, from Atlanta, Fat Matt's Rid Shack has amazing ribs and chicken. So I get a combo platter from Matt, Fat Matt's Rib Shack. Um, I would have a company that, a Barola wine from Torino, um, big, big juicy red. And then um, I would have a Honey's Donut. I don't know if you've ever had Honey's Donut from Vancouver over in Deep Cove. Amazing donuts. And I would uh, wash that down uh Athens style with a uh, frappe coffee uh, that um, hopefully will be made by Maria, who was one of the ladies who worked with me in in uh, Athens uh, when I was doing my IOC stint. So that's that's that would be my meal. Well, that sounds like a wonderful meal. Hard to beat that. <laughs> no burgers from Salt Lake I see on there, but I think you made some good choices. Yeah, there we go. Exactly. Well, I, I want too much meat. I got to you know I got to get off this island eventually. So. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, truth be told, I mean, what do we got here in Utah? We have burgers, jello and ice cream. So <laughs> I, think, I think going from some of those other culinary, yeah, I'd yeah. rather go with the ribs and the, there and we chicken go. Yes. And kind of, so. fantastic. 
let's uh, let's turn our time or let's turn our focus rather back to Salt Lake 2002. So yeah, what were you doing before you joined the committee, and just how did you find yourself in Salt Lake City? Mm-hmm. So I had uh, I'd gone to grad school in '92, uh, got a master's in, in uh, sport management uh, from Ohio State, and towards the tail end of that, I'd started playing. Um, a sport called team handball. And I'd come down uh, for a national tournament to Atlanta and happened to be playing in a tournament. Didn't know at the time, but uh, the national team coaches were looking to bring on additional talent to the national team that was in training for the 96 Olympics. Uh, and so I got a, got approached by the coaches, asked if I wanted to come and try out for the team. Um, was honored. I said, I'd love to. And I had, I'd been a previous, I had had a previous uh, Olympic trials experience in, in track and field. So Olympics were on my radar or something that I wanted to be involved with uh, as an athlete, but also even you know, from a work standpoint. So part of my interest in going to grad school was international sport, collegiate sport, professional sport, all of the kind of the sporting realm. So anyway, I went down to Atlanta, made the team and um, I started uh, training I had previous to that, I had sent a resume to ACOG trying to get on uh, coming out of grad school and got a form letter back saying thanks, but no thanks. But while I was there training with a team, there was a guy named Bryant Johnson who was a former handballer uh, who was now working in the Olympic Committee. And um, he, we became friends and he made inroads and um, got me introduced into Doug Arnott and the venue management department. And I really, you know, I had a minimal amount of experience. I had some experience um, in kind of in events, but pretty low level. But uh, got an interview, uh, went well, and I and Doug and, and the venue management team extended me a job. Uh, so for the next year and a half, I was training twice a day with the handball uh, guys and and playing in matches and we traveled internationally. But I was also working uh, in uh, in the in ACOG in the venue management department, and I didn't realize at the time. But I was just I was very fortunate to have brought into venue management, be brought into venue management, sort of that holistic overview of the event space. Um, not that any one department is is you know wrong to go into. For me, though, I just really enjoyed that more broader base of experience and working. Uh, cross-functionally with a lot of different departments. Uh, So I was a coordinator working with a bunch of different venues and venue managers. Um, Ultimately, I had to come to a a tough place. I made a decision about focusing more on work rather than handball. Um, It was kind of coming, it was right before team selection, that sort of thing. There's kind of some writing on the wall that as it was winnowing down, there was a really good veteran in the same position that I played. So I made a decision to to go over to... um, work full time. It was about maybe six months before the games and I uh, was rewarded. Doug, Doug saw something in me and gave my, gave me and one other guy, we shared responsibility for being the venue managers of the Atlanta university center, which had two field hockey stadia and, um, a basketball arena, both of them, all three of them actually purpose built for the games. And so we got to see oversee uh, and work closely with the construction and build out of that. And then eventually the delivery of the Olympics. I had basketball during the games. Uh, and it was just a remarkable experience. Um, I thought it was sort of like once in a lifetime, you know, I'm like, here I am, I'm an American working on a U.S. games. Next games were in, in uh, to- uh, excuse me, in 
um, Nagano. And then after that in Sydney, and I was just kind of like, Oh, you know, the Japanese and the Australians will do their game. So I wasn't even really thinking about going international with it. And, um, I know there was a handful of people that did, or maybe larger than a handful, but some people that did. Um, so I stayed in Atlanta for another four years working different jobs. Um, uh, one of them was in, with a marketing agency. Another one was with uh, Bell South telecommunications, uh, in their marketing department. And I was about two years into Bell South and had a conversation with one of my friends from the Atlanta games, uh, Jean Marie Morrissey, now Jean Marie Blissett. And, um, she said, they're needing some people out here. And I was like, really? And she was already out in Salt Lake. And, um, so she connected me with Doug and I talked with him and he says, yeah, we, we need some, we need uh, somebody to come out and, and oversee, uh, ice hockey. Um, so through not too many conversations, I was kind of, I was not really feeling it in the, in the uh, telecom space. And, uh, that all right. So I packed up my house and moved out and started at Slock uh, kind of mid mid 2000. Um, I think it was yeah, I think it was in actually listening to Karen Williams. We were both came out of and started about this the same day. So it was uh, June 2000. That's a fascinating story. I also joined in June of 2000. Okay. Now, <clears throat> You tell me about coming in and assuming this role of being the the venue manager of ice hockey. What did that entail? Mm -hmm. It was an exciting opportunity in part because, um, you know, I had worked on a bunch of different venues in Atlanta, as I mentioned, uh, ultimately had basketball. And, I, you know, again, I was pretty young. I was in my I think I was 26, 27 when I was in Atlanta. And so I was fairly young, fairly green. A lot of it was just kind of like going by the gut. And so what was interesting about Salt Lake was that it was kind of working from this place of at least one games of experience. Um, and, uh, so my role was also elevated in that it now encompassed looking across all of ice hockey, um, you know, worked closely with Karen. She had peaks and originally had peaks. I had, uh, the E center and the two, uh, practice sites. And then eventually, um, we sort of made some changes and the two of us sort of oversaw all of ice hockey and the four venues. And then eventually we brought in uh, a great, one of my, <laughs> one of my dear friends from, uh, uh, from Atlanta uh, brought in uh, Tim Larkin to oversee um, the Peaks Ice Arena and hockey down there. So it was overseeing, you know, all of, uh, all of ice hockey and everything that goes into getting those four venues up and running. Um, there were some, you know, some big challenges uh, that were right sitting right there as we were, you know, heading out from the games. Came in shortly, you know, not too long after, um, you know, some of the scandal broke and the new leadership came in, and it was really trying. I think there was that feeling of like overcoming some of that scandal, what it meant, and and working against, you know, a number of odds. You know, there was a lot. I think there was a lot of question marks about the health of not only the the Salt Lake games, but IOC and the Olympic movement and you know, where that was going to go. Um, sponsorship dollars, I think, you know, being looked at all, it's all those elements. So I think there was a lot of pressure, um, a lot of expectation. Yeah. Well, we'll dive into all of those in a bit, but you mentioned uh, joining with Karen and <clears throat> we've had several people from ice hockey on. In fact, a couple of hours ago, we had Brad Agard on. 
Uh, did you? Yeah, just, just did his podcast. Yeah. And Brad said, you were the best boss he ever mm. had. Wow. Multiple people on this podcast have said this. Uh, I can't remember if it was Amy Murray, but maybe maybe it was Amy said, well, if if uh, if we have another election for president, she'd vote for you. So <laughs> when you talked earlier in the conversation talking about, all right, well, you know, I, I, I kind of pivot over to this leadership space and mm -hmm. and whatnot. Well, clearly you have the goods to back it up. I'm curious how you develop this leadership philosophy because, you know, some people may just be born with certain things naturally. Some people may work very, very hard to acquire those skills. Uh, some people may do a combination of both of those things. But what was it about those early years uh, from grad school, the the handball team to working for ACOG and then the other things you do? What was it that allowed you or helped you to develop such uh, an impactful leadership approach? Mm. Mm. That's a, a great question. Um, I'm very thankful for the comments that others have made. Um, it's humbling and I'm very grateful. They're very kind. Uh, I think for, you know, I think it comes from several places. Um, I have a, my dad is, is, uh, is a, I come from a, a line of, of, really quality men. My father was, uh, I really love him. Look up to him. His father, uh, the same, I'm named after him. I took his, his middle name is Alan. Um, and my dad is just a quiet man. He's a quiet, he gets things done. He's a man of his word. You can, you know, if he tells you he's going to be somewhere, he's going to be there. He's an incredible amount of integrity. Um, so I think I saw that early on in him. Um, and his attention, he has attention to detail and quality. So that's a part of it for me. I think I got involved in sports early on and saw the the benefit of teamwork um, and the fact that you know having too large of an ego destroys team chemistry and can destroy uh, the ultimate outcome. So I think I, I brought a lot of that as well into the leadership I've done. And then I think um, you know, to be very, this, this is going to get real, very candidly, you know, I think being a minority, being uh, African-American in this country, there's, you know, a number of things that can come against, come against you and, um, and certain expectations that come, you know, preconceptions. And so I think for me, part of my, part of my life has been overcoming preconceptions while also trying to enable others to not be put into a box and be put into a preconception and realizing that, um, that for us all to work and to gel and to accomplish, um, that there has to be a level of trust and vulnerability, uh, amongst the team. And that through that, when I feel like, um, through this like level of, of servant leadership, if I, as a leader if I, with the power am able to step back and not exert that power, but rather come alongside an individual or a team in a, in a vulnerable way, in a way of you know, truth and authenticity. And it feels like that team can then start to come around that. And there can be trust that's built and people can realize that, you know, we can just be ourselves here. We're all going to be accountable together. We're all going to march forward together. Uh, and that we're only going to, you know, it's kind of cliche, but we're only going to be as strong as our weakest, weakest link. So let's, let's all get strong together. Uh, I have a saying I love, which is 
um, you know, go fast, go alone, go far, go together. And, uh, you know, there's times in my life where I've gone fast. Uh, but the most meaningful times is when I've gone together and we've gone far and we've accomplished great things together. It's really interesting when talking with Brad, he mentioned that mm. Salt Lake 2002 really gave him his first experience mm -hmm. of managing people. Before that, he was just kind of a, he was a guy that just went and did stuff, you know, mm. he was just a part of the mm. team. So he described working under you as with leadership with training wheels. Like he, you know, he had to do the work, but you yeah. were there to kind yeah. of make sure that he stayed on balance and wasn't going to fall over. And I really, really like that. I want to come back to the, the aspect of working mm. as a minority. Here in Salt Lake City, which is a rather right. homogenous community compared to many other parts of the country, that could be potentially challenging. At the same time, we've heard from a number of people that have been guests on the podcast that the Salt Lake 2002 workforce was a pretty diverse lot. We had people from all over the country, from various parts of the world. And so it was kind of an interesting melting pot. I remember on the 11th floor, I worked in technology. We had in the atrium there, there were all these flags from like 22 different countries. We had people from 22 countries that worked in technology. So what was, what was that like? You, you come from, from, you know, Bay area to Atlanta now to Salt Lake city. Yeah. Working in a in a in a a state that is predominantly Caucasian, mm -hmm. then at the same time into an organizing committee that is also rather diverse and quirky. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Um, what was it like? It, it it definitely was. I think there's a there's a little bit of a bubble that happens around Olympic Games. Um, that they can be a bit different than, than really the predominant culture of wherever the games are being held because there is such a melting pot of people. Um, uh, so I think Salt Lake had that. You know, there was, um, there were people from, yes, all over the world, all different languages. Um, that being said, when you got outside the bubble, when you got outside the, you know, the nine to five or maybe more correctly, the seven to seven work hours that we took, um, and you got into Salt Lake, yes, there was a more homogenous experience, um, that took place there. Um, I've, you know, I've lived a lot of my life in predominantly white communities, so there wasn't, uh, it was there was some familiarity with how to navigate some of that. Um, I also think that, you know, by and large, there was, there's a really a warm and welcoming element to Salt Lake, to Utahns, uh, even more specifically to like to the, to the Mormon church. Um, you know, I think there's a, a warmth that happens in some ways, maybe it's a, you know, around for other means, but I think there's a warmth that comes there. That being said, I'm not, you know, there's, there is some history with, you know, racism and prejudice in, in the, in the religion that, um, that actually were cause for conversations at times, um, and for exploration. Um, interestingly enough, my dad and my mom, um, I was conceived actually in Ogden, Utah. Uh, I didn't know this until a little later, but my, my mom and dad's first year of marriage, they moved for my dad's job. They moved to, uh, to Ogden. And so, uh, they moved out just before I was born, but, um, they were there for a year. Uh, and so there are some stories, uh, you know, that my dad has told about in incredible 
racist experiences that he had not being able to get apartments, uh, my mom having to go get it. So there was some of some elements of that, that, you know, that I saw and experienced, um, but by and large within the organizing committee itself, um, there was just, yeah, there was a warmth uh, of people. Uh, and again, I think in large part because of the diversity of, of the staff and the workforce that was there. Uh, There's also a lot of people that I knew from Atlanta as well, you know, so I was coming in with some, some already pre-made friends. That's one of the interesting things about these events, right? You, you have these people that you kind of know, these little networks that build. And when you come from out of town or out of state or whatever, and you, you come together to work on these events, you create almost your own little family units, you know, <laughs> you just kind of right. assemble yourselves together. I'm curious uh, for you, what was that experience like seeing, you know, meeting some new people, but also seeing some old friends and then coming together and almost like this little pseudo community? Yeah. You know, I had an amazing time in Atlanta. It was, you know, it was in my mid twenties, so much fun. The organizing committee there was, was fairly young, um, as well. And it was my first big job, uh, actually my second big job, I guess. And, but it was just a ton of fun, a ton of energy. And there were a number of people who were out in Salt Lake that had been a part of that. So there was this immediate sort of connection with folks. It was like a re- reunion in way, in, in many ways. Um, one of the things I think that was really unique about and, and attributed to the success, and I've heard some other people talk about it, but attributed to the success of Salt Lake is when I look back on sort of the, the evolution of the games environment and this nomad, nomadic kind of fraternity of, of event professionals that you talk about, I really think that it was that Salt Lake was a beneficiary of of a number of things that lined up. You know, you had you had these event professionals who had done Goodwill Games or World Cup '94, um, then went into Atlanta Games, and then the Salt Lake Games came on the heels of that. Uh, you had um, you had the Aussies who you know they travel already, right? They're traveling in packs and traveling deep, and and they came over and they added in. And so you had this, and then you had the, the local, I think the local culture of, uh, of Salt Lake and Utahns that came in, um, that added to that mix. And I think all of that together, it was sort of like, you know, cause you didn't have TOK, you didn't have the transfer of knowledge. So when I first came into Salt Lake, I was like, and these are some of the same issues we were dealing with in Atlanta just, you know, years ago, we're answering, trying to answer some of the same questions, all fresh and anew. But what was unique to me about Salt Lake was that you had around the table in your major functional areas, you had people who had done it before and not only had done it before, but in some ways had done it before and done it together. So you could look across the room and I could, you know, I see a Tony Vetrano or I see a Trish Fenton or I see, uh, you know, Jerry Anderson and his you know, venue design crew. And you have a, a level of understanding. This is where we're going. We already know where we're going. We have a level of trust. And so that to me, there was an ability to refine plans even more as opposed to coming up with entirely new answers. You're building off of answers and a level of knowledge that existed. And so you're able to go through more refinement and bring in some incredible, I think, some really innovative things that were done in Salt Lake and, and uh, some ways in which these games came off that I think is really attributable to the level of talent and success and the ability to just like more quickly drop in and get to solutions 
Um, and in many ways not have like this defensive territory, you know, just like, let's, let's get this done. Right. Like we got a finite number of days left to go. So it's eventually getting to that place of pulling the trigger on solutions and, and, and marching forward. I totally agree with you. I think Salt Lake 2002 represented a unique confluence of talent from all of these different streams to come together. That being said, um, it couldn't yeah. always be necessarily easy to integrate all of those oh. different points of view together uh, because people come with their various experiences. Uh, I, I also think that what you made a very important point, which is that gave you uh, a solid foundation from which you could innovate. And I want to, mm-hmm. I want to ask you a little bit about that. You know, what were some of the innovations that you were a part of or you witnessed in delivering the Salt Lake 2002 games and how did they come about? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, one of them, again, you know, Doug brought me into Atlanta, brought me into Salt Lake. Um, I really have a tremendous amount of respect for what Doug did. The, the venue management structure and sort of the broad structure of what Olympics have become and large events have become, now, Doug started that back in the Bay State games back up in Massachusetts and then refined that through World Cup 94 and Atlanta and other things. And, and so I think his, his continued involvement of what that was, the role of venue management, how other departments were going to work with venue management or how venue management was going to work with other departments, I think continued to get uh, refined. And I think one of the, the big things that took place um, in, in uh, Salt Lake was there was a a unified timeline across the organizing committee, which was trying to bring all venues and the departments in a, in a simultaneous sort of, con, uh, a lot of continuity in terms of the planning. So that, that, uh, and the development of uh, procedures and processes. And, uh, and that culminated in a model venue, um, experience, which actually eCenter, we were the first one to go through that. We were sort of the, the model for the model venue experience. Um, and it actually was a point of, of team building for our team. You know, so each, each functional area manager had to essentially present what they were going to be responsible for, the staff, their delivery, the operations during the course of a day, and how everything was going to work. And so through the process of getting ready for that model venue experience, we really had the opportunity to get our venue team even more cohesively gelled. So I think that was that was an innovative element, that parallel planning that brought everybody along, um, but also that model venue experience. We start talk, thinking about the different stakeholders are going to come in and what is their, their pathway, what is their experience as soon as they hit the venue, throughout the venue, exit, all of those things. We got to you know think about touch points, which you know when you're running a thousand miles an hour, just trying to get the venue ready or redoing for the fifth time the same procedure because you didn't get the thing decided in the four previous meetings, you don't have time to really think about, okay, how can we take this to the next level? So I think that was a, that was a big piece that I felt like was really, really solid. I think it also, that type of planning and where we got enabled us to handle something like 9-11 in a, in a, in a much uh, more effective uh, fashion as well and be able to uh, get ready for you know, that change. So one of the things that you mentioned there was that the model venue exercise helped uh, strengthen your team and bring them together. And you're right, because here we are, we're Mm -hmm. working in different functional areas and we are all concentrated on our own functional area, but eventually we have to work together as a venue team, which is a, which is a different element. So, you know, for you, what was that like, uh, 
building up your venue team and and incorporating all these people from their functional areas and getting them to work as a cohesive venue team? Mm-hmm. No, it's, um, you know, that time was my second time going through it. And it's a unique experience, you know, with the Olympics being a matrix organization, you know, where you have these, these uh, siloed uh, functional areas that are planning in a silo uh, and responsible for, you know, their own budgets and their, their own delivery. But then at some point in time before the games, all being brought together. And now sort of some of the responsibility being handed over to the venue management team and the, and the team specific to that venue. It's an interesting transition. And it's that, that element of sort of like the department being able to send the kid off uh, on their own. And now this functional area manager being able to report into a new boss, so to speak, or a new leader while also still having reporting back to uh, their functional area. So I think it's, it's a, a balance that has to happen. And to me, the success comes from um, building a really strong level of trust within the team uh, to where they know that um, I heard actually Lisa Sams, who you, you brought on, um, you know, she talked about the dot planning exercise uh, and the way in which that was approached and some of the challenges that are there. And you have to having to talk down to the individual numbers. And one of the things that I felt like, you know, she asked like, you know, well, why do you need this person? Or, you know, why are they there? And I think there's a why and not only in why they need the person, but I think there's also a why in understanding the why behind why this person feels like they have to have them. And I think a lot of times that why is tied to the level of responsibility a department or, or a functional area manager feels, right? They feel this level of responsibility. Like I need to have all of my stuff. I need to have all of my staff, all of my resources, because I know at the end of the day, if something falls down, I'm going to, the finger's going to be pointed at me. And I think it's getting them to understand that um, by understanding that why, that level of responsibility that they're feeling, you can come at it then from the understanding that, you know what? Let's work on the, from the standpoint that we're all in this together. The team is together. You no longer are in this silo of a department focusing just on the department. You're a part of the team. We here at eCenter, we're all going to cross the finish line together. So you transportation manager, you logistics manager, technology manager, et cetera, et cetera. We all are in this together. If one fails, we all fail. When one succeeds and we all succeed. And so it's getting, it's getting them to take on board that and building the trust, which then I think can be the foundation for people working really well together. That's super interesting. You mentioned Lisa there and the, and the dot plans. I mean, we can all remember back to those uh, dot plan yeah. days trying to justify our headcount. And yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> but uh, I'm not going to go any any further down that track. But it, did, it did remind me that okay, now you're getting your your venue team together, mm-hmm. and um, there's a process that you go through to kind of game plan out everything. Right, you go through all these operational readiness right. exercises. You do tabletops. You do walkthroughs. You do yeah. talkthroughs. You do rehearsals. You do simulations. You do all these different things. You try to imagine all the different scenarios yeah. that could potentially happen. What could go wrong? I'm curious. When the games approach, or when the games, you know, came to fruition here, you're 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 working on these games. Were there some were there some instances where you looked like, okay, this is we knew this was going to happen, we game plan for it. Now let's go execute the plan. And were there any unexpected things that popped up? They're like, man, we didn't we didn't think about that one when we were doing the operational readiness exercises. 
Yeah, you know, yes, I, I think we, we did it. You know, again, coming from Atlanta, the experience I had there was like, um, we had done a lot of work in, um, on scenario planning and tabletopping. We, we started just as our team, we started doing it before it was even a, um, like an organization-wide experience in Salt Lake. It's just like I wanted to make sure as a part of preparing policies and procedures that people were understanding, you know, like where their responsibilities began and end, who to communicate to and that sort of thing. It's because it's, it's so important. So we were doing a lot of that already. And then obviously it got rolled into um, and sort of making up our own, you know, like it wasn't, again, it wasn't an official part. We were just making up our own. Um but so I, I'd have to say, and I don't think it's just because of, you know, 20 years of distant memory, there weren't a lot of things that came up that caught us by surprise. We had a pretty smooth Olympics. That's not to say that we weren't, you know, working our tails off and there weren't problems. Um, but, you know, by and large, we didn't have crazy weather things that happened. You know, we had, we had a couple of days where there was some snow that fall, uh, fell down and we had to, you know, reduce some snow removal. Um, you know, some of our biggest challenges we actually knew about. We knew that we were a prime event limitation venue. We knew that we would have some big games with the U.S. team, some big games with Russia and big games with Canada. And we had been hammered by uh, the fire department, the fire marshal uh, about capacity and what were our plans and security and all that stuff. And the funny part was um, on our gold medal night, we were over capacity. And some of those that were contributing were people from West Valley City and the fire department who were just coming in and watching the game on their on their badges because they had all access. So I was like, oh, OK, you guys were you guys were trying to make sure that we were in compliance. You're the ones you're some of the ones that were causing the problem standing in my aisles right now. So, um, so yeah, I, I really don't. It went really, really well. You know, that our we had, as uh, you know, has been mentioned, we had some days three, three, uh, matches a day, three games a day. Um, I think there was only one day that we didn't have a competition, I believe. Um, so we were, I mean, it was humping and we had Paralympics. So we had a tight turnaround to the Paralympics. Um, but it went really, really well. It had a quality, we had just a, a team of really quality committed people. Um, we had, uh, really good volunteers that showed up and showed out and did a great job. Three of which were my brother my sister-in-law and my dad, um, which was a great experience. And um, it was just, it was really good. Uh, and on across all venues, you know, Brad had responsibility for the two practice sites. Um, you know, it was, he was newer in the experience, um, but was eager, full of energy and did a great job at managing those practice venues. Um, I know you you talked with Karen Williams about uh, about us bringing on uh, Tim Larkin. Uh, the call I made to him was, "Hey, Tim, you um, you have an amazing opportunity to uh, work at a a water park that turns into Olympic venue once again because that's what he did in in uh, in Atlanta. It was uh, um, it was a water park that was turned into a beach volleyball uh, venue and." At Peaks was the Peaks uh, water park that uh, was down there that had the ice arena. So uh, Tim Larkin was phenomenal, just a great, great uh, talent in the event space and did a great job down at Peaks. 
And then, you know, I had Karen Williams and uh, John Peaster as, you know, my two uh, uh, front of house and back of house assistant managers. And they were awesome. We had stars in all of, all of the functional areas. Uh, the sports department, you know, had great experience. Um, the NHL and, you know, we had, we had, uh, the studio was in our venue for NBC. And so, um, lots of, lots of, uh, focus on by the NHL and NBC, um, and we, I think we had broadcast 54 games from, uh, 54 matches from the, the E-Center. So it was, it was phenomenal. It was a great experience and it went really, really smoothly. Well, it's super awesome to hear, have you hear, say that. I do remember, maybe it was John. I, I can't remember someone uh, telling us a story how uh, Micah Rosioni was not let into the venue. And uh, so, yeah, yeah there, <laughs> there were a little, little, little hiccups, but nothing major. I, yeah, I think something happened. I don't remember what it was. I think Mitt, we got we had a little uh something that happened with Mitt and his like his parking out front one time or getting in the venue. We kinda had to smooth some ruffled feathers there. But you know, like those little things, they happen. You know, you have uh you have folks who in many cases have never done the job they're doing before, right? They're volunteers, right? They're just reading badges or they are you know, reading a policy and procedure sheet that they got yesterday kind of thing. Right. And so there's, you know, there are times when they're going to be, when they've been, when they've heard like, this is the most important thing for you to do. And they're like, all right, I'm going to do that. And, um, the, the ability to kind of create exceptions in the mind is that's another level. Right. So, yeah, but overall it went really, really well. Um, I think Jim Brown, he came by like once or twice, kind of poked his head in. I think Doug came by once or twice, poked their head in. Uh, we had, you know, we had obviously a lot of uh, stars and royalty and all that because of some of the games we had. And, you know, our our, um, our uh, Olympic family seating was oftentimes over capacity. Um, so, but it was a great experience. Really, really good. Uh, I have to give a nod as well to uh, Brent Bishop. Well, that was one of the things I would think was really interesting in the way in which the uh, original organizing committee started, you know, with these volunteer venue chairs, you know, so Brent Bishop was our volunteer venue chairs, uh, leading businessman from the area who was fantastic. He had, you know, all sorts of connections in the business industry and community around Salt Lake and really Utah and was a wonderful support to our team and to our volunteers, uh, to everything that we we're doing. Um, he has, yeah, I think his, a big portion of his family was working on our venue as well. So that was, that was awesome. Well, it's funny you mentioned that being a family affair, you said mm -hmm. your dad and was it your dad my, and your... Yeah, my dad was a uh, volunteer services. He was working out the front in the mag and bags. People often joke and tell me, why didn't you get your dad a cushy job on the inside? And I said, well, he, he did volunteer services in uh, or spectator services in Atlanta. He wanted to do it again. And then uh, my brother and his wife uh, were, they worked in the suites. They were um, overseeing some of the suites that were uh, in, on the inside. So, yeah, it was great having all the three of them share the experience. That is awesome. Uh, when we had Brad on, he said he had his parents uh, come in to town and 
they, they yeah. slept on an air mattress while he slept in his bed. Uh, um, yeah. It's so awesome to be a family affair. I was telling him, and I'll tell you, we today, actually, later today, we'll be airing our first, either today or tomorrow, we'll be airing our first episode with a volunteer uh, telling about their experiences. And so oh, I, I make that invitation okay. to your family members and any other volunteers, if they want to come on and share their story, we'd love to have them come oh, on. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's such an important component of the games. I mean, you know, it can't happen without them. So... Yeah. Well, you mentioned the Paralympic Games were also held there as well. So why don't you right. tell a little bit about working the Paralympic Games there at the East Center? Yeah. You know, I, I love the Paralympics. I first got exposed to it in um, in Atlanta. My, my venue happened to be the wheelchair basketball venue. Um, so I'd had experience there. There was a little bit difference in Atlanta that the organizing committee that was putting on the Olympics didn't have necessarily responsibility for the delivery operationally, but we were the venue owners. So I was involved from that standpoint. And in this case, in Salt Lake, we obviously we were, it was a, a coordinated effort between the two. So we had responsibility for both of them. Uh, it was, it was a challenge. Um, the, so one of the, one of the big challenges that I inherited when I first got to, to Salt Lake was our venue agreement was, essentially a paper version of a handshake that had been made by the previous administration. And it was really lacking in terms of uh, what was necessary. A couple of the things that were lacking was it didn't have the dates correct for opening and closing ceremony, like the venue use dates that we needed. Um, and it didn't carve out the, the time in between the Olympics and the Paralympics that we needed to do the venue turn. So, you know, we had the Grizz, we had a semi-pro hockey team that were, that were there that we had to get them to go on the road because we had to obviously uh, do all the, the load in and getting ready for the, the major changes for the Olympics. Um, but then we had nine days to turn the venue over and not only get it ready for the Paralympics, but our venue also became the main press center for uh, Paralympics. So we are we erected this huge tent um, out in the parking lot uh, that became the MPC for Paralympics. So we now had a uh, you know a sporting venue going on while we also had we we're you know bringing in um, uh, broadcasters and and, uh, and and written press. So it was a lot to change. Um, you know, sledge hockey obviously you know different needs from an athlete standpoint. Um, different needs, even from a spectator standpoint. Um, so there's modifications that had to be done, uh, both to the, the seating arena, as well as the athlete experience on the inside, uh, that was, that was necessary. Um, a bunch of stuff that had to be done on the out, on the exterior, uh, both removal of some things because you didn't need as much, uh, the resources, the temporary, um, the temporary setup on tents and trailers, and then also the addition of some things. So, um, Karen, Karen Williams ran, ran point on that, um, during our, our planning uh, phase. And so carried a, a lot of the, a lot of the load on, in terms of looking on that, but, you know, it became, um, and, and actually I think if I'm not mistaken, Brad came back and helped as well. Um, so we had, you know, we had, again, a team of stars that were helping, um, getting this venue transitioned and changed over. But you know you're exhausted, right? You just you've just done the march of the Olympics, uh, 17 straight days. We had two medal ceremonies during the Olympics. We're now going to have another uh, couple ceremonies uh, with the with sledge hockey. So it was it was getting the team to 
realize that we 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 hadn't really got to the finish line. It's been more like we'd gone to an exchange zone and the baton was being given and we had still had more of the race to run. But you had to, you know, you had to recognize that people were tired. Um, we said to go, but there's just something about, that's one of the things I love about these games, these events is like people, you just summon, you find something, you don't even, you find something more than you even knew that you had. Right. And the team finds something more than they knew they had. And, uh, so we just push through, you just, you get it done. Um, I love the story. I feel like in many ways, the, the athlete story on the Paralympic side, is even more emblematic of like the celebration of humanity and the celebration of, you know, triumph over all odds. These, you know, these people who were those athletes, they're living and overcoming odds every day of their lives. And, and they're putting amazing athletic efforts forward on the, on the ice in this case. Uh, so I just, I, I love the Paralympics wanted them to have the feel that they had every level of quality, every level of service that we were putting forward for the, uh, for the Olympian Olympians and the Olympics, uh, that you're getting the same, you're getting the same. So we had fantastic crowds. Um, you know, they did a great job of bringing in school programs that packed it out. We had amazing raucous crowds that were, um, there for the sledge hockey games, uh, some really awesome competitions, uh, us and Canada was a standout game. So, uh, it was wonderful, really, really good. And, and the team rose to the occasion and, and delivered really, uh, in a strong, strong fashion for the, for the Paralympics as well. I'm with you hundred percent. I think the Paralympics are awesome and it's nice to see their popularity rise in the last um, mm -hmm. few games editions. We've really seen it uh, yeah. where it's become a real family affair for, for the spectators, you know, the tickets are less expensive. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people can take their families out and it just becomes a really, really awesome. I think spectator experience, right? Well, you've talked in our conversation about some certain people that have influenced you along the way, Doug Arnott that brought you on and others that mm -hmm. you've worked with in the early days. I'm just wondering if you could just give us a little bit of, uh, a little bit of a sense of the, the people that kind of helped shape who you became as a leader. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, you know, I think, um, we are a composite of those experiences, especially when we open ourselves up to it. And I have some people who, you know, like Doug, who opened doors, you know, he opened the door of opportunity for me to come into Atlanta. Um, you know, a young kid who also was playing handball. Right. So there was, there was a, there was a couple of factors where he could have said, this is not going to work, but you know, he gave me an opportunity and I really appreciate that. And, um, and then mentored me, you know, through Atlanta and into Salt Lake. Um, so he's one I, you know, I, I really owe my career in large part to that start and that that Doug gave me. Uh, there are some some awesome people that I worked with in Atlanta um, that were a part of that venue management team. Uh, Jim Brown was uh, was one who was both there as well as you know had a leadership role in Salt Lake and continued to mentor and and support me there. Um, there are some great people. Jerry Anderson was another another uh, guy in in um, Atlanta that I worked closely with. Just got to see his creative genius uh, and the guys that he had on the venue design side. And then when I came to Salt Lake, being able to work closely with him there, um, 
those those three were were big people on the venue design and venue management uh, side of things. Stuart Ash is another one uh, on the on the uh, venue management side who was also in Salt Lake. So you know, I got to work under some of the names and some of the people work under and alongside uh, those kind of people. And then there were others who were coming from other departments. Um, you know, Ron Delmont is another guy from logistics who I worked closely. We kind of came in into Atlanta around the same time. He had worked on some events before in the World Cup, but uh, and had gone on to do some other things. But Ron Delmont is another another person. Um, Lou Loria is a really good, good uh, friend, and I've loved to see uh, ha- how his career has evolved and gone on. Um, Alan Shaw is somebody, um, he has an amazing mind. Oh my gosh. Uh, what he has done, um, on the whole, you know, venue planning side of things and continues to stay in the events. Um, and then some other people, I mentioned Jean Marie before she's one who, you know, helped to that access that doorway into Salt Lake. So I have to acknowledge her. Angie Ernst is now Angie Brown is a great, great, great friend of mine as well. And, um, yeah, so just, there are so many people. I, I, I almost hesitate in saying names because there's a, a long list of people I'm leaving out. Um, but I am a composite. I feel like in many ways who I am and uh, has I've taken little bits and pieces from so many individuals. Uh, I have been mentored and trained and challenged by so many that um, my life and my career has you know been forever changed and and made that much better um, by the people that I've worked with. And it's one of the reasons why I continue to come back to these kind of events for, you know, who they, who they uh, bring in and, and who is attracted to them. Yeah, well, this movement is a gift that keeps on giving. You mentioned that you've taken little pieces from all of these different people who uh, many of those you consider mentors. Well, many of the people that work Mm -hmm. for you in Salt Lake and other places have all taken bits and pieces of what you brought as well. And so that that just keeps on going, right? That chain just keeps on going uh, throughout Mm -hmm. the throughout the decades of people have learned on this, uh, learned from the accumulated experiences of their predecessors. And so I really appreciate you sharing that. Right. You've shared a lot of great stories with us, and we typically wrap up with a goosebump moment of the games. But before we do, I want mm-hmm. to give you an opportunity to share any other stories that you had in your memory banks that you wanted to share before we get to your final goosebump moment. Mm. Oh, uh, one, 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 I think there's a few that know about. Um, we had, so our, uh, our venue. Um, excuse me, our sports director, Dan Morrow, uh, is Canadian from Thunder Bay, uh, Ontario. And there was uh, another, I'm just forgetting his name now, this name just slipped my mind, but another, another Canadian who was on loan to us from the NHL. Uh, his first name is Dan, I'm forgetting his last name. Uh, but he was also Canadian. And um, the two of them were in charge of getting obviously the field of play ready and laying the ice down. And we had a bunch of modifications we had to make to the venue to uh, extend, you know, make the, make the venue, the ice surface larger for international ice than it is for NHL. Um, some major construction issues and seat removal and that sort of thing. Um, 
so they were responsible for for doing that, and a lot of it had to be done, you know, over a long period of time, overnight, and long hours, and that sort of thing. Putting putting the ice down, and then striping it, and putting more ice down over top, and it's a very meticulous process. It was beautiful. It was awesome to see and to experience. And it's one of the things I love about the Olympics. I mean, you you get to this opportunity to see all the unique components and culture of each sport, right? Um, and so I love that. So we kind of you know get all the ice done, the tournament happens, um, and Canada wins, as you know, um, you know, Canada wins actually on, on both sides. And the story comes out that the loony had been placed in the ice, um, on at E center. And I was just like, it was, it was one of those things that came back. You, you, you need to get Dan Morrow on. That's the one who you need to get on, have him explain, just how he had the audacity to plant a loony in U.S. soil uh, and tilt tilt the uh, the Olympic gold in, in Canada's favor, but that was a, that was an interesting story uh, that I remember. That was really cool. Um, I think some of the other things that s- stood out to me uh, is just the amount of fun that that we had as a team and an organization um, with some of the very specific things. I think the Salt Lake organizing committee did, you know, like the provision of, of ski passes, you know, the, the, I think the, the forward looking way in which, um, you know, Lisa Wardle and the HR team thought about the support for employees so that you weren't as concerned and worried about where you were going next. you right. There was at least some support and assistance around, you know, looking to help, uh, support things with, um, interviews and making introductions to companies and that sort of thing, which I think was just really, really meaningful uh, and helpful. And I had actually, it was in listening to, um, listening to Lisa's uh, podcast, I realized there was a, a big legacy that was given by the bonus structure. I, I remember now I connected the dots that the bonus that I got, you know, based on you know, the work done and how long you were there and all that sort of thing and staying through the end. That bonus I saved, that enabled me to actually purchase a home in the future, which was, uh, I bought up in, in Vancouver when I lived in Vancouver and worked on those games. I sold that place and that's what allowed me to buy this house here in the Bay Area um, that I have a rent, uh, it's one part rental that has enabled me to weather this COVID situation and unemployment for the last year. And so there's element of these games still carrying a legacy that I think is beautiful. You know, it's the legacy that we hear about with friendships, with marriages, with kids, um, with relationships that have been, that are work related launching of companies. Um, you know, it's legacy you're carrying on with this podcast this, the legacy of the games, and that's you know, not, not discounting the legacy that was done through UOP and everything that Colin Hilton and that whole team are overseeing uh, around the legacy that exists even more specifically around infrastructure and, and support to athletes. I think there's just, that's a really remarkable element around, around these games. You know, Olympics get so much focus and criticism for um, how much money is spent and, you know, white elephant venues that are left. But I think Salt Lake did an amazing job at cultivating um, strong responsibility around the future and around the legacy. And I continue to see it on so many different places um, generally. And as I mentioned, connecting the dots personally. So 
Yeah, it's really awesome. That's super cool. That's super cool. I want to dive into that legacy a little bit more in just a moment. But before we do, is that your goosebump moment? Or do you have another goosebump moment of the games? Yeah. It gives you that warm, fuzzy feeling anytime you remember it. I have I have two goosebump moments. I'll be I'll be I'll be quick with them. One is um, it's a personal one. It doesn't really have anything to do with the sports, but um, I took a, again. Speaking of skiing, I was at the border. And I had a, a, a snowboarding experience with my brother and with um, a guy who's now he's still a very dear friend. He was my logistics manager, a guy named Jason Oberholzer, and uh, we were out snowboarding it was up in uh up in park city and we were on we hiked way up to the top of this bowl and we were just sitting there on this top of this bowl getting ready to just go down through some fresh powder and it's a moment that i remember all the time with my brother with jason oberholzer who i just i love like a brother and it was just one of those moments of just like this realization of like wow this this is really incredible. You know what a what a special privilege we have. So that's one goosebump that just brings warmth. And then the other is a gold medal men's game. Um, you know we had again it's a long slog to get to uh, get to the final. Get to as I said not just cross the finish line but pass the baton. And um, it was an amazing game. We were over capacity. Uh, as I mentioned, like just it, the venue was a bursting at the seams with so many people that shouldn't have been there, um, but were. And the game ended, and I was able to see my dad, um, my brother. I got him down onto the the um, the ice the ice surface to help roll out the carpet for the for the ceremony um, that we did there on the ice. And, it was just, it was one of those moments I'll always remember, um, just the achievement of getting there, seeing, uh, seeing that whole thing take place, being able to share that, that experience with both family, but also people who since then have become family. Well, I'm not part of the family. I have goosebumps when you just <laughs> tell them it to me. I, I can, I can picture in my mind, you know, being at the top of that bowl and just what that's like. And uh, it just sounds magical. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share it. Let's come back to this Absolutely. legacy of the games. You know, for you, you had some personal yeah. legacies. You also mentioned that the games were unique in some respects and they provided some kind of a unique experience. And you've clearly learned a lot along the way of uh, lessons that you can share with us. So why don't you kind of take us out? on your post games journey and the lessons that you've learned along the way that really kind of underpin your own uh, life and career philosophy. Yeah. You know, some of them I've, um, I'd shared a little bit earlier, but I think understanding the why I think is a, a real important one. If we can take ourselves away from our own focus, our own perspective, and understand the why that's coming from the person across the table or the person on the other side of the conversation, it helps to find ways to solutions and compromise. Um, and I think really putting ourselves in that place of understanding what a person's why is, why they're holding a position, why they're fearing uh, or feeling fearful or why they're holding on to something. When we can understand that, that is, that's what unlocks the ability to get to, uh, I think, to compromise solution and, and eventually success. Um, I also feel like there's um, a real uh, emphasis on always be learning. Uh, I know it's, again, a little bit maybe cliche, but I think it's really important. You know, you have people who come in, um, we call them one game wonders, right? Somebody who just worked in Olympics and they come in and they have all the answers. Um, 
But the reality of it is every single Olympics is different. Even if you've, uh, no matter how many you've done, every single one is going to be different. Even if you're working in the same department, um, there's unique challenges to every single Olympics, every single host city, uh, every culture. Even if you do a, an Olympics in the same city, it's not, it's never going to be the same. So I think always be learning, which in, again, comes back to, you know, being open and not feeling like you have all the answers. Um, that place in the middle of, of listening and then finding ways to, to come to solutions, I think is really important. Um, now I mentioned it before, but servant leadership, I feel like, you know, as, um, uh, as leaders were given a tremendous amount of responsibility, um, and, and with that responsibility and power in many ways, you know, I think to be really effective, there has to be a level of setting ego aside and focusing in on the team. Those that are with you, those that are doing, taking the journey with you and realizing that my success as a leader is completely tied to these people delivering, these people getting what they need and them delivering on, on uh, what their responsibilities are. And so for me as a leader, it's how can I best support them in, in that? How can I, make their lives easier? How can I remove obstacles? How can I support them at the times when they feel like maybe they can't, uh, when they fall down, help them, you know, pick back up, uh, when they doubt themselves, you know, breathe life back into them, breathe confidence back into them, help them to see more than more of uh, who they are. So, uh, I think those are some of the biggest things and have been a big part of how I've continued to not only lead, but continue to, you know, work within team structures and, and organizations. Well, I think those are fantastic lessons. And in the last uh, year or two, eh, maybe a little bit more than that, you've heard a lot of people talk about empathy. Mm -hmm. I think you phrased it quite nicely. This understanding the why behind yeah. a person is, is acting really, that's the essence of empathy. Sometimes we use that word and we don't really understand what it means, but all of the things that you've just uh, mm -hmm. talked about there really point to empathy right. and the importance of empathy and effective leadership. And I really appreciate you bringing that up. My pleasure. Well, I have exceeded my allotted time and I appreciate you very patiently answering all of my crazy questions. Now, if people want to, if people want to connect with you, they want to learn more about how you could potentially help them uh, with leadership and organizational development, or they just want to swap stories about Salt Lake 2002 or other events that you've worked on. What's the best way for them to reach out and contact you? Uh, probably the best way is uh, via email. I guess the I'll put the the one that's longest standing, and probably uh, you know a few folks have, but it's Alan F. Brooks. So A L L E N F like Frederick Brooks at gmail.com. Alan F. Brooks at gmail.com. All right, Alan. Well, it was a pleasure to have you on here. A real honor. And I appreciate the time. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast, and we'll catch you again soon. Alan, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Christian. Enjoyed the conversation.